You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them in the kingdom of God and cured those who needed healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what has left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our triune God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your provision for us. We pray now, Holy Spirit, that you would lift our eyes, that you would lift our heart, that you would lift our hands up to Jesus. Help us to see him in your word, that he might be high and lifted up, that our hearts might be high and lifted to him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Tonight is both a lower elementary and a torch night. So if you are a lower elementary and you've already got a sticker on, or if you are a fourth through sixth grader and want to head out and talk about this very text, We'll miss you guys. There goes half the room. Uh, Y'all have fun. Uh, Good evening, everyone. If I haven't met you, my name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. I'd love to meet you after. Um, Just a heads up, over the next couple of weeks, we've been, uh, we started way back in December, the first Sunday of December, we started this walk through the gospel according to Luke. And next week, after 23 consecutive sermons in this book, Uh, through these first nine and a half chapters, we're going to take a break from it for the summer. Next Sunday, which is the Bickett's last Sunday with us. Oh, yeah, well, much more to come on that. Uh, Next week, we'll get through verse 27 of chapter 9, which is a pivotal and clarifying moment 
in Luke, and then we're going to begin for the summer the book of Joshua, which there is just so much to consider in that book about God's holiness, about his dwelling with his people, about the righteousness of his people, so much to think through and consider as it pertains to us as a church. We're going to start that on May 7th, and as we've announced before, uh, we're excited for Jordan to preach three, maybe four consecutive sermons in those uh, first few chapters of Uh, Joshua, I remember the first time that I had to preach a second Sunday in a row, and like the Monday morning after Sunday when you had to open a new blank Word document, and it was like, oh no. Um, And so we're really excited for Jordan in preparation for what is to come of his Lord willing planting of a church in the summer of 2024 to get a few consecutive weeks under his belt. My family at the end of May is planning to, for the very first time since we've lived in New Mexico, to drive to see Marcy's family in Florida, uh, which is three days driving there and three days driving back, 30-something hours. Uh, And while things basically east of Dallas get a little more interesting with trees uh, than, you know, get closer to the Gulf, more varied. But for those of you who have driven across West Texas, you know that it's basically just dirt and trains and windmills. And windmills are incredible. Transition. Here we go. A couple years ago, uh, one of my friends or one of my kids asked me, how do those windmills work? And I said, well, they turn and they generate energy. And then they were like, well, then what do they do? Well, then these like windmill farmers or whoever owns these windmills, then they sell the electricity to cities. And then they're like, how do they do that? And I was like, I don't know. They're like, put it in a box and then they sell it for some money or something. Like ask Mr. Church or some other scientist. I have no idea how that actually works. Uh, But though I don't understand, I do know that the wind blows, which then turns this giant turbine, which then creates energy that eventually finds its way to my house and an outlet and to my phone charger. I don't know how, it just happens. It's magic. But it is immediated power. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here in John 9. He has been showing his power and his authority over the past eight chapters or so. And in the past two chapters, he has been describing and showing the kind of salvation that he is bringing, the salvation of power, the saving power that he brings, which is the salvation of cleansing, a salvation of forgiveness, of inclusion, and of peace. But now, here in chapter 9, there's a bit of a shift. Jesus is now preparing his disciples for life and for ministry when he will no longer be physically present with them. And so in chapter 9, verses 1 through 17, what you just heard Theo read, we're going to see the power of Jesus. And if I can say this not quite right, we'll see the power of Jesus like bottled up, put into like a box or something and moved along. It's the power, the energy is moving from like the plains of Amarillo to the outlet, the outlet in my house in Albuquerque. It is a mediated power, a delegated power given to his apostles now for the good of others. And so we're going to see the power of Jesus today in three movements. We're going to see and consider uh, the power of Jesus delegated, the power of Jesus considered, and the power of Jesus received. So delegated, considered, and received. All right, first of all, the power of Jesus delegated. Remember, we have seen Jesus over the past several weeks. We have seen him calm the wind and the waves. He has just brought a cleansing salvation over demons, over disease, and over death. And what does Jesus then do next? 
Verse 1 of chapter 9, Luke 9, and he called the 12 together and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now for a long time, People have been coming to Jesus. We've seen the the crowds. We've seen the mobs. We've seen the sick and the poor uh, inwardly moving toward him. But now something different happens. He is now, people aren't coming inwardly toward him. He is now sending the 12 out. Like so much of the Old Testament, which was a come and see of the glory of God uh, that moves out to the nations, but it really is an invitation in. There is now a transition beginning to happen of now a go and tell of the kingdom of Christ. He is delegating his power and his authority. His power and authority. The same power and authority we've seen over the past several weeks. The power and authority of Jesus that drives people from initial fear, some of them anyway, initial fear into a reverent respect, asking the question of who is this? Who is this man? And now all of a sudden, the 12 are to go out and do the exact same things that Jesus has been doing. They are like deputized to go out and to cast out demons, to cure disease. They preach, they proclaim, they heal. And if you were with us back in September of 2020, when we started the book of Acts together, in that very first sermon and throughout really the entire book, we considered that while our English Bibles title that book in our Bible, the Acts of the Apostles, a better name for that book might be the Acts of Jesus by his spirit through his church. The Acts of the Apostles is really just Jesus continuing his work through his people. And so it comes as no surprise that some of the same stories that we find in Luke actually then find rhymes in the book of Acts. Luke wrote both books. It's really just one book. It's Luke-Acts. And so there's like rhyming stories that happen. The story we saw last week in Luke 8 of Jesus gently bringing a little girl back to life in her house is so, so similar to Acts 9, where Peter gently brings a little girl back to life in her house. A centurion who is well spoken of by the Jews sends servants to Jesus to ask him to come to his house in Luke 7. And likewise, in Acts 10, a centurion well spoken of by the Jewish people sends men to Peter, asking him to come to his house. Jesus brings peace to his shipmates on a stormy sea in Luke 8, and Paul does the exact same thing in Acts 27, of Jesus being falsely accused in increasingly influential courts and sham trials by the end of Luke, and the same thing happens to Paul, being falsely accused in increasingly influential courts and sham trials by the end of Acts. But in all these things, both the power of Jesus and the suffering of Jesus will continue on in the lives of his people. His body the body of Christ experiences the same thing as Christ, but more on that next week. But here, in the power of Jesus, he is preparing them for all that they will, in just about a year's time, begin to experience for themselves. They are to begin practicing at what he told them would be true in Luke 5, verse 10, that that he would make them fishers of men, that he would make them the Jeremiah 16 fishers who are to go out and to regather and lead the people out of exile into a new exodus into the settled land of God, the settled presence of God. But the instructions that he gives to the 12 are a little confusing, right? Like, it's, it's a weird thing that he tells them in verse 3. He says, and he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. Do not have two tunics. Now, these instructions that he gives them are working at two levels here. The first is just very practical. 
They are to travel lightly. They are to depend on the generosity of others. But they are not to depend on the generosity of others as beggars. In fact, the word that Jesus uses for bag, when he says, nor bag, don't take the kind of bag. The word that he's using is usually a kind of money bag that like traveling teachers would carry with them in an expectation for charging people for teaching wisdom. Like you would move into a town Uh, teach some wisdom, some wise philosophy, expect to make a bunch of money out of that week or two or three, and then move on to keep making money. This mission that he's sending them out on is not to be for their own benefit, a money-making mission, but it's to be for the good of others. But the second level is theological. And I think the theological level of this is what actually informs so much of the rest of our text for tonight. Jesus's instructions to his apostles to the 12 should, I think, fire in our imaginations the instructions that God gave to his people of how they were to keep and to remember the Passover. Every year, remembering that very first Passover, uh, the people were to actually kind of have bags packed as they remembered the, the, as they partook of the Passover meal. And that very first Passover, God tells uh, the people in Exodus 12, in this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste, for it is the Lord's Passover. Here, in Luke 9, these new agents of a new Passover are to travel lightly. They are to always ready to, to move on to where more hearers might be, where more hearers of the salvation of God might even provide for them more sandals, more, another staff, or even more bread. And so Jesus tells them here in verse 4, whatever house you enter, stay there. And from there, do not, er, and from there, depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. In other words, where you're welcome, stay there until you're not. There's this to be a ministry of like infiltration, not of like guerrilla gospel strikes, of like a quick in and out attack with the gospel, but of influence that they, and therefore the power of Jesus might be received and then begin to grow. Not just a quick reception or something like that, but stay until they stop hearing you. Jesus will actually continue to provide for his people here. He will provide for the 12 through the generosity of others. But, and we, as we briefly thought about, when Jesus healed the centurion's servant without even being present, when he could just heal with a word, Jesus here is preparing his disciples and showing them that he can continue to heal, that he can continue to work and move through them when he is not physically present. But more than that, the 12 are to understand that there is no such thing as neutrality when it comes to Jesus. Now, things in our own present moment, in our culture and society, have gotten so polarized, like slowly over the past 10, 15, 20 years, but now like on steroids, up to 11 in like the past three years or so. We have been faced as a culture on social media and every time you turn on the TV or whatever with like option after option after option of false dichotomies, meaning our culture tells us that you must choose this and you must adopt this like with your whole heart, soul, strength, and mind, or you must accept and adopt this. There are only two options, from politics to justice to COVID, and now increasingly questions about sexuality and gender. We are seemingly forced into saying or believing one thing or one thing, when in reality, there are like 
a thousand more moderate positions that one could accept in between these two things. But those are not options given to us. We might call this a false dichotomy or a false dilemma, a dilemma when there's actually not a dilemma. There's actually more than two options here. But not all dilemmas are false dilemmas. What we do with Jesus is an actual dilemma. There are only two options. Two weeks ago, we thought about that the most important question that any human must answer, every human that has ever lived, the most important question that any human can and must answer is who is Jesus of Nazareth? Who was, who is that man? This is the fountainhead question at the top of the flowchart of all of human existence. And so what Jesus is saying here is that neutrality is not possible. Because Jesus is the creator and the king of every human, in these villages here in this day and age, and in this room tonight, you can either align yourself under his power and authority, living rightly in his kingdom, or not. Two options. Neutrality is rejection. And so here, or at least Jesus tells his apostles here, to reject the place that rejects you because to reject you is to reject me. This town, this village, this house, whomever, if they reject you, they are rejecting me. Neutrality is rejection. And so a natural question for us to ask of ourselves with this text and the similar text in chapter 10 where Jesus gives similar but even leveled up instructions to not just the 12, but to 72 disciples, is does this or how much of this applies to us today? Like, should we sell all that we have and follow all of these instructions? Should we just leave here tonight with no extra clothes and no extra food and then move about sharing the kingdom of Christ? And if someone rejects rejects this, invitation, this announcement of the kingdom, uh, take off our shoes and like throw dust because they have either clearly rejected or in their neutrality rejected Jesus. This was a question that we asked lots of times throughout Acts. The question of what is descriptive in Acts and what is prescriptive in Acts? What parts of the Acts of the Apostles or what parts of the Acts of Jesus by his spirit through his church in Luke Acts simply are describing what happened? in which parts prescribe for us what should still happen. Some of those questions that we thought through in Acts were really, really difficult. Healings, movings of the Spirit, all of these things, these were difficult questions that we wrestled through, many of those scenarios, for like a year and a half through. But this one actually isn't difficult. At the end of Luke, almost near the end in Luke 22, Jesus tells his disciples this. He says, and Luke tells us, he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, in Luke 9, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. This is in Luke 22, 35, and 36. He's saying, back then, remember, Back in chapter 9, when I sent you all out with nothing, what he's saying is, I was teaching you to trust in my provision for you through the generosity of others. But here, in the present day of Luke 22, much has changed. When I send you out, you need to prepare well. You need to plan. You need to work. You need to take 
provisions along with you, something has changed by Luke 9, or from Luke 9 to Luke 22. And what's changed is is this. The itinerant, moving about, mobile ministry of Jesus, the moving about, mobile ministry of preaching and healing, this will actually, by the time just before Jesus' death and resurrection, be transformed into a longer-term ministry of planting, of establishing the order of the church. And so while there are still principles for us to take and understand from Luke 9, we actually commend and send Aaron and Rachel to Asia with the same sense of like incarnation, of of belonging, of infiltrational ministry, not just guerrilla attacks of gospel sharing, but of staying and belonging. This takes planning. This takes financial preparedness. We don't just say, hey, just take the shirt on your back and just assume that you'll be provided for through the generosity of others. Now, this is a Luke 9 thing. Now we're sending them out for long-term establishing of the order of the church. But we also expect them to stay, even when they encounter rejection, even when they encounter neutrality. When the Baptist missionary Adoniram Judson moved from Massachusetts to Burma in the early 1800s, he could have moved on when he saw no conversion for the first five years of his life. He could have moved on from village to village, shaking the dust off of his feet, just assuming that there must be someone else in the next village on who would receive the word of Christ. But instead, he stayed. He stayed where he first landed. He stayed, he learned the language, he translated the scriptures into the local language. And in his sixth year of living in Burma, can you imagine living in a place for six years with no fruit, In his sixth year, he saw his first neighbor come to Christ. Twelve years later, he saw 18 people come to faith. And now, 200 years later, the Karen people of Myanmar or Burma, they carry on a deep and rich Baptist legacy of enduring faith, of established churches that carry on as a result of Judson's perseverance. Six years Something has changed in that moment in the 1800s than from here in Luke 9, and certainly by Luke 22. But in this moment in time in Luke 9, Jesus is sending the 12 out to do the soil work, to go out with like hose and just start the tilling work, to prepare the ground for the gospel of a crucified and a resurrected Christ, which will come in the following years. He is preparing and shaping his church long after his ascension. So, right now, he is sending out his power to begin through his apostles, delegated, deputized apostles, to start doing the work. But now second, after the power of Jesus is delegated and sent out, let's take a brief intermission here for the power of Jesus considered. The next section is a, is a very brief palate cleanser. This is, a, this is a bit of ginger before the next sushi roll. Luke is giving a foil, a, a character who is like an anti-Jesus. We might even say an anti-Christ, an anti-disciple, an anti-receiver of Jesus' word. He is giving us this anti-person, this foil, to better highlight the real power, the real kingdom of Jesus. He gives us verse 7. Now Herod, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Here it said, 
John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Now, we're not going to spend a ton of time here because Luke doesn't. In fact, so much of the language that Herod uses, Peter is going to say the, almost the identical thing that we're going to think through next week. But Herod, who fancies himself the real power, the real authority of the region, he is perplexed by Jesus. Jesus's reputation is growing. It's making waves. For the first time, we see Jesus making waves beyond just local crowds, but making waves politically. And Herod is perplexed by it all. We might summarize these three verses as Herod asking the exact same question that the disciples asked on the boat in chapter 8. He's asking, what? Who is this? He wants to see the show. There's lots of magic going about in the land, and he wants in on some of it. Luke says he sought to see him. He's curious, but it's probably very similar to the same kind of curiosity that most people might have with celebrities. We want to catch a glimpse of them. We want to see what they're like. We want to take a picture of them, maybe even get a picture with them. Maybe this is what Herod wants to like get on his Instagram feed, a picture with Jesus, the magician of the region. But we understand that we probably won't really know them, just kind of curious about them. And the picture that Luke is painting of Herod is not of saving faith, but of curious neutrality. But we're going to ultimately see that his neutrality, as we just considered, his neutrality is actually rejection. Because we're going to see Herod reappear in the Gospel of Luke, and we'll see him reappear in Luke 23. If you want to flip over there, just keep your finger here in, verse nine, or in chapter 9. But in Luke 23, verses 8 through 11, we read this. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, remember? Because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. He is rejecting Jesus. He is just curious in the magic. He, want, he had long wanted to see him. He just wanted to see some of the show. His neutrality was curiosity. His curiosity was ultimately rejection. And so if this is the power of Jesus delegated and sent out, and now we're seeing the power of Jesus considered in a curious way, but ultimately rejected, now the main event. Let's now see the power of Jesus received. In verse 10, on their return, their return from being out and about healing and preaching, on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Now, you could imagine these conversations, couldn't you? This is like, like when you, some of you youth kids get back from camp, and we, your parents, pick you up, and it's like one story after the next. You'll never believe what happened. You'll never believe what happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And we're like, oh man, that sounds great. I just have to imagine that Jesus was just like, that's, that's really great. I'm really glad. This is so amazing. I'm so happy for all that you have experienced. And so he wants to withdraw to spend time with them, likely to like, continue to download and debrief everything that they've experienced. But again, the crowds will not let them. Jesus's celebrity really is growing. Jesus can't go to the grocery. He can't go even fill up his gas tank without the paparazzi being there, always trying to get a glimpse of him, to be with him wherever he goes. And so even though his plans with the 12 have been interrupted, the crowds are pressing in, 
I think I, perhaps most of us, would just say we got to figure out some plan to like escape by night or something. Jesus, his plans are interrupted. He welcomes the crowds. He speaks to them of the kingdom of God, and he cures and heals those who need healing. But as the day goes on, and it's getting late, verse 12, the 12 come to him, and he's saying, send the crowd away to go, or they say to, to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. Now, a desolate place. This is literally, for we are in a wilderness. This is the same word for where Jesus was tempted for 40 days in Luke 4. It's the same word for where Israel wandered for 40 years. And so if Luke wanted to perhaps fire our our imaginations with the lightly packed, ready-to-move imagery of the Passover in verses 1 through 6, perhaps now he wants to fire our imaginations even more of the hungry wilderness wanderings and feedings here in chapter, verse 10 through 17. This is one of the few miracles of Jesus that all four gospel writers describe and highlight. Mark and Matthew are a little more clear than Luke is and that they understood this miraculous feeding in the terms of the wilderness feedings of Exodus. John is the absolute least subtle of them all. He all but calls Jesus a new Moses, and he calls this bread a new miraculous bread, manna from heaven. He even then says Jesus is the bread from heaven. He's, he's not trying to keep this subtle in any way, but if Luke is showing us here a new Israel wandering in the desolate place, wandering in the wilderness, hungry and needing God to provide for them, what happens? Jesus says, verse 13, you give them something to eat. John adds the detail that Jesus said this to test them, not to tempt them, but to give the disciples, to give them like a learning opportunity. Like when your parents asked you, all right, what do we do next? This is a test. Like, all right, we got our fishing pole. We've got our tackle box here, buddy. What do we do next? All right, so we've put in the flour and the eggs. What should we do next? Your mom and dad knew exactly what to do next, but they want you to have the opportunity to to figure out what we should do next, to learn for yourself that it might become cemented in your memory to make the right decision. Same thing. John tells us that Jesus actually asked Philip, hey, Philip, where are we to buy bread for all these people? And the right and the first response of Philip and the 12 here in Luke 9 is to think through, you know what? I don't know. But we know that you know. I think we're to assume in John's gospel that when Jesus asks Philip, all right, man, you've been following me. You've been learning from me. So what is it that we should do now? Where can we buy bread from these folks? Keep asking me. I will give you the answer. I will provide. But in John chapter 6 and here in Luke 9, Philip there and the rest of the 12 here are like, like, are you nuts? I don't know where we're going to buy bread. There's like 5,000 people. Even if we did have money for this, and even if we did have like a dozen bakers in town nearby with all this bread ready, that still wouldn't be enough. John tells us that Andrew then pipes up, that he's found a boy who has five barley loaves. These would be like smallish kind of round pitas and two fish, fish that were probably pickled, could be later eaten as a small little snack. So they've got that. They've got five pitas and like two sardines. Great. 
Or they say in Luke, unless you want us to go buy more food for the 5,000, 5,000 men, perhaps three to four times that many people when we've included the women and the children. There is no money for that. No money for food at a moment's notice for potentially 10, 15, 20,000 people who are here. And the disciples have no answer. There is literally nothing that can be done. And it's like they've failed the test. The fishing lessons that dad has been given or giving have not been working. So the original test of, all right, buddy, we've got our fishing pole and our tackle box. What should we do next? It's not just, I don't know, but you know. It's like, I don't know, and why are we even here? I hate fishing. Can we go home? That's a rough translation of the Greek. And so Jesus, presumably, just like sighs. He's like, all right, well, verse 14, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. There is order in the smaller groups that likely recalls Exodus 18 when Israel was divided into thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens, and they all sit down. Verse 16, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now, Bible readers for the last 2,000 years have wished that just one of any of the four gospel writers would have been a little bit more clear in how Jesus did this. Like, how did this work? And I don't know. None of them really care. Like, did the disciples come over to Jesus and he had an overflowing fountain of, like, bread and fish that then the, the disciples just start, kept filling up their baskets with and they would go and empty and come back and get more? Or did Jesus give each of them, like, a small crumb of bread and fish that by the time they had taken to their group of 50, it had, like, grown into a big loaf of bread or something? I don't know. And the gospel writers don't care. Only that they are caring about communicating to us that this is a miraculous feeding of bread in the wilderness. And here again is where the Passover becomes so important. Every year after the first Passover, Israel would remember what God had done, how through Moses, God had delivered them out of Egypt, how through Moses, God had taken them through the waters of the Red Sea, how through Moses, God had led them through the wilderness, how through Moses, God had provided for their physical needs with bread from heaven. And here, Jesus is doing the same things. In fact, he's doing the same things at multiple levels. He's likely symbolic, symbolically showing an absolute new Exodus movement here with 12 baskets perhaps representing a new Israel who likewise is being fed by God with miraculous bread in the wilderness. Jesus is a truer, is a better Moses, leading through a truer and better Exodus, not from the slavery of Egypt, but from the slavery of sin and self. There's also a continuation of the first six verses of chapter 9. Remember in the first six verses of chapter 9 where Jesus delegated his power out to the apostles, he delegates here again to the 12 to feed the people. Have you ever noticed that? That Jesus doesn't do the work himself. He actually delegates the 12 to do the work. They distribute. There are 12 baskets. Each of them has played a very important part in Jesus' ministry in this chapter. At, their, at the beginning of the chapter, their ministry was that of proclamation and of healing. But here, Jesus is likely preparing them for a future ministry that also includes shepherding, hearing, being up close and personal, understanding and considering the needs, being attentive to the needs of the people. 
And the power of Jesus will provide for the people through the ministers. But just like in the first six verses, the power of Jesus will provide for the ministers through the people. And so while we are not, we people in this room, or current day pastors are not the 12 apostles, this is not prescriptive, God still does work in this way today. He delegates his heavenly authority to the life of the church to pronounce and proclaim those who belong to him. He delegates his work, the work of his power of salvation, through the sharing mouths of his people. Paul considers in Romans 10, how will those in our lives believe if those who are in our lives do not hear? And how will those in our lives hear if we do not tell them? The mediated and delegated power of God lies in you, lies in us today. So a question for us becomes, will we share this gift? Will we share the saving power of Jesus and with whom? While some, like the bickets, will be sent very far away from us to those who might otherwise never hear the good news and the clear truth of Jesus, most of us will stay right here. And yet there are many in our lives right here who are near to us, but who are far from Jesus. And so the question becomes, as we think about the mediating sent power of Jesus through his people, is who is near to you? Who is near to you, but who is far from Jesus, that we can be moving even closer toward, that we might introduce to the power and the salvation of Jesus that they then might receive. But Jesus and Luke are doing even more here than that. John fills even more of the teaching gaps of Jesus as he is providing this food miraculously. He's also teaching. But here, Jesus lifts the crowd's eyes, their attention from their guts their appetites to God. He lifts their eyes, their attention to the Lord who provides. This is especially clear in John 6, but we're going to see here also that the reason that we hunger or thirst in the first place is merely evidence that we hunger and thirst for something that is actually more substantial. Like when have you ever had a meal that fully satisfies even a miraculously provided meal, when has that thing satisfied you? Meaning that you never need to eat again. Never. Even the biggest or the best meal of your life, you were hungry again within a couple of hours. And we could just explain this away from a material or a purely material perspective, like a perspective of matter that just says calories. Calories is what we need. And so we might say, that's a stupid question. Like, when would you say that your car has ever been satisfied, fully satisfied at the gas station? It gets satisfied for a bit. It uses the calories, and then it needs to be fed again. But I think Lewis is helpful here, C.S. Lewis, when he says that if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Or if I might revise a bit, that we were made for something from another world that could satisfy. 
Because here's how Luke explains it. He says in verse 16, in taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven and he said a blessing over them. And then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. Even more than that, what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. There was too much. There was too much food. They ate until they were full, and there was still enough. They were satisfied, and there were leftovers. There was grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, a fountain of provision that could never be exhausted. Because there is a coming moment in the life and ministry of Jesus that will echo, that will rhyme to this moment. In Luke 22, starting in verse 14, see if you hear some common themes, see if you hear some rhymes. And when the hour had come, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In both places, in Luke 9 and in Luke 22, he takes, he blesses, he breaks, and he distributes the bread. He gives himself that we might be satisfied in him. He gives us this meal. Remember, he's moving towards the established structure of the church, and so he gives us this meal to remember his body and blood, that we might, with very, very meager drinks and bites, we might receive him as a foretaste. This is not, this meal is not intended to fully satisfy. It can't, it's tiny, but it prepares. It is a weekly appetizer of the true food, of the true bread from heaven. It is a reminder and appetizer that we might keep eating, that we might keep tasting, that we might keep seeing that the Lord is good, that we might not leave here from this room every Sunday evening to then go out and spoil our appetites on everything else that the world has to offer. And so this is the question that was posed to the disciples, and it is the question that is posed to you is that have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Have you received the power of God in Christ for you? James Montgomery Boyce, a longtime pastor in Philadelphia, once asked, he said, is he as real to you spiritually as something that you can taste and handle? Is he as much a part of you as that which you eat? Do not think me blasphemous when I say that he, Jesus, must be as real and as useful to you as a hamburger and french fries. I say this because although he is obviously far more real and far more useful than these, the unfortunate thing is that for many people he is much less. Boyce makes what's, what initially sounds like a blasphemous and preposterous claim that to many of us a hamburger and french fries is more useful, is more real, is more satisfying than Jesus Christ. But if we were really honest with ourselves, I'm sure there would be many in this room that this wouldn't be all that preposterous. We don't really understand our sin. We don't consider it 
before an infinitely holy and just God. We don't understand ourselves fundamentally at odds with him. Therefore, the gospel is not great news, not just good news, but great news that has saved us from death to life, but instead just becomes some advice on how to become a bit more wise and mature, how to get perhaps to a place of more stable mental health, to have and make more friends and to have deeper community. The gospel becomes a place for us to consider how we might raise good or better children. These are all good things. But when they are ultimate things, the gospel of Jesus' bloody death on our behalf won't actually be that real, won't actually be that useful, certainly won't be that satisfying. Jesus offers life through the deep digestion of his words, through the deep digestion of his work, that apart from him there is no life, there is only death. And so the question comes for us as we sit here in ordered little groups of 50 or 100 or whatever we might find ourselves in is, will you feast not just on the gifts that he gives, but will you feast on him? This is a question not just for others in this room. This is a question for you. Because his grace is not just grace that is intended or directed toward others, but it is directed and intended for you. That none of us in this room, the grace of Jesus is not intended just for those because none of us are just for those who have their lives cleaned up, who have their lives in order, who have given themselves to Jesus that he might reward them or something like that. Because no matter how we might appear externally, some of us in this room, all of us in this room are hungry. All of us in this room are longing. All of us in this room are self-satisfying and self-worshipping. And yet just as Israel, who was a nation of sojourners, who found themselves on a journey out of slavery and into the place of God's dwelling, into the settled place of God's presence, love, and peace, they were nourished and they were sustained by God on their journey from bread from heaven, we too, a nation of sojourners find ourselves on a journey out of slavery and into the place of God's dwelling, the place of his settled presence and his love and his peace. And we are nourished and sustained by God through Christ, the true bread from heaven. So the question for all of us in this room is, will we consume the words and the work of Christ on our behalf? Will we digest the words and the work of Jesus into our deepest being? Will we taste and will we see that he is good? This morning I read this. The world puts mountain-sized faith in seed-sized saviors. Mountain-sized faith in seed-sized saviors. Saviors of wealth and prestige and sex and entertainment which do not deliver. And so today, as we gather to pray and to sing and to read and to give and to eat and to, do, and to drink, we put our seed-sized faith into a mountain-sized Savior who always delivers. Does he not? He does. Even what little faith you might have today in him, he will deliver. He is able. He is able to give life. He is able to cleanse. He is able to save. He is able to keep us on our journey to heaven. 
as we continue on as his people, sojourning through difficulty, sojourning through hunger, sojourning through our own sin and grumbling, and yet he is faithful because he is faithful to his promises. Amen. Seed-sized faith in a mountain-sized Savior. Let's pray that he would increase our faith and increase our vision in him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we trust you. You are good. You are faithful to your promises. We have never seen you not faithful. We pray, though, that we would, that you would increase our faith, that we would be less and less tempted to doubt you, less and less tempted to provide for ourselves, that we would be like you wanted from your disciples, saying, I don't know, but you do, that you do. We don't know the answer, but we trust you. We trust you to provide. Help us to grow in this. Help us to trust your provision for us, that you give us all good things, that every gift that we have is from you. Help us to trust you in your goodness, your power, and your salvation. We know that you love us. We know that you provide for us. Lord, we love you. Lord Jesus, you have given us yourselves. Might we taste and see that you are good. Digest you into our deepest being, knowing you are good. We love you and we trust you and we pray all these things in your name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.